As these extreme weather events happen, it really puts people in harm's way, especially the poorest people on earth that don't have the resources to get out of harm's way. Most of the growth in the world right now in retail is coming from brands that are marketed as green or environmental friendly. Everything about this company is you know, mission driven. We need to think big. We need to push ourselves. We have a master plan in place. That's a 10-year plan. When we, when we hit that, we'll do the next one. And it's just long-term compounding growth that will have the effect effect of achieving the mission that we want to achieve, which is help mitigate climate change and actually make a dent on that. Phil, you and I met seven years ago. Wow. Uh, 2015. And do you remember, uh, do you remember how we met? Was this at your apartment party or did I meet you before then? Yeah. So okay. I, I threw a party at this super small apartment in Italian BB here in Sao Paulo. And it was like, it was a studio apartment basically, but we figured out how to get like 60 people on the rooftop. And you showed up and I was like, who, who is this guy? Uh, because you came off as way too happy, way too positive, way too energized. And I was like, this guy's got to be full of crap. And now you're one of my best friends. And, and I think, it probably took me like a few weeks to realize, no, no, this is just how Phil is. Phil's like the most positive person in our friend group. So uh, first question, like, what? why are you so positive? Why, why is life so good for, for Phil Cotters all the time? What's your, what's your philosophy in that regard? Wow. First of all, th- thank you. Um, I think it's just a recognition of how how lucky I am and how fortunate I am to have the life that I have. Um, I think it comes down to basically childhood, but also even understanding like family, family history. You know, my grandparents, well, my great grandparents on my father's side were, were murdered in the Holocaust. My grandparents survived Wow, they were in their twenties and, um, were able to move to New York with, with my dad uh, after he was born, when he was 13, they came from the Czech Republic to, to New York. My mom's side came from Italy. Immigrants wound up arriving in New Jersey. Where was your mom born? She was born in New Jersey. Her parents were born in Italy. Okay. And so anyway, we grew up, I grew up, um, you know, youngest of three kids, you know, great sort of setup. Um, life was, life was good. And, you know, my, my dad specifically always reminded me like how, how life was good and how the one thing that you need, I mean, I guess there's more than one thing, but the main thing that you need in order to have a good life is freedom. And if you have freedom, then you can literally do anything you want. And, and then you can control your own destiny in a lot of respects. Now there's other things, of course, that go into it, like things that are out of your control sometimes like health, but generally speaking, um, positive outlook was good. I mean, when a lot of people were cursing the rain, you know, my family or my dad specifically would be like, that's, that's what the crops need. <laughs> you need the water, you need, you need that. And, and sort of this sort of outlook of everything's okay is, has been with me. And um, to this day, feel feel extremely fortunate, like one of the luckiest people to ever walk the face of the earth. I, I've met your dad a few times. He's, uh, he's, he's a lot of fun to be around, super positive as well. Obviously, I'm sure that's where you got your uh, mentality from. What, what was it like growing up? What was your dad like as a kid? 
What did he do for a living? Great question. So let's see. Grew up um, in central New Jersey, right outside of Princeton. Uh, how far is that from New York City? About 45 minutes to an hour, depending okay. on traffic. Yeah, it's sort of smack in the middle of New York City and Philadelphia. Um, and had a wonderful childhood. We had like backyard and a cul-de-sac, and I was outside constantly. That's what I most remember about my my childhood. I was playing roller hockey in the streets mostly. I wanted to be in the NHL. Yeah, you're a you're I think I remember you're like one of the best hockey players in Brazil probably. I don't think that's saying did, much, did we, but that's did, probably true. <laughs> yeah, we we were uh when was this 2017 you were with me at Park City. We were with the Brazilian bobsled team and the uh, the folks that run kind of the ice sports for the Brazilian Olympics. Yep. Yep. And we started talking hockey and I think someone had the realization that feels like one of the best 5 or 10 hockey players in the country. Probably, probably. I, I hit my peak at, at age 13 playing, playing ice hockey, won a national championship in the States um, and continued to play until, well, I was still played on you know, the Goldman Sachs ice hockey team in New York after college before mm-hmm. moving down to Brazil. But uh, since now I've been in Brazil, uh, it's like almost the Happy Gilmore quote. I'm literally like 5,000 miles away from the closest hockey rink. So, Have you played hockey in Brazil ever? There's no re- legitimate like ice hockey down here or anywhere in South America. The closest rink is in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's limited. But I mean, overall, just a lot of time outdoors, like with friends, with the siblings. We were active. My parents were, are just amazing characters, and I appreciate them more and more as time goes on. I feel like as a... As a kid, you can appreciate them a little bit, or you probably don't appreciate them that, that much, and you give your parents a hard time. But once you get into adulthood, you're kind of off on your own. Uh, you get to know other adults, and you have more and more responsibilities. You know, I'm a father now, married. You just get to see, like, wow, like how incredible their their character is. And in terms of memories, like what it was like growing up with them. I mean, I just have like some very distinct memories, some specific ones that I think highlight. Um, my dad, for example, is we used to when I when I first started playing hockey, like six years old, you know, you, we would get the first ice time, would go to like the six year olds, and then and then and then onward. So, you know, our games would be at six thirty in the morning. Was your dad playing hockey too, or how did you get into it? So he played hockey as a kid in the Czech Republic, and then okay. once he moved to the states, they saw like nineteen seventies ice hockey on TV, and they were, his parents were like seeing like the Broad Street Bullies and like just tons of fighting going on. And his dad was like, there's no way you're doing this. So like a different type of sport versus European ice hockey. But anyway, so we would, you know, wake up at, he would wake me up at five in the morning on a Saturday. And granted, he worked his butt off all, all week. Uh, and I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But wake up at five in the morning in the best mood, just being like, hey, we're going to go play hockey now. Like, let's do it. I remember we would always like grab McDonald's drive through on the way there, just to, like get a little food in, our, in, in my stomach and go play hockey. And it was just one of those things that was, really, you know, it stayed with me as I now have my own, my own child of just like, Hey, like time alone, freedom is everything's good. Like we're going to have a good time. And, and so it's been, that's been positive. And to answer your question around what he did, it was mostly, um, in the computer business. So he studied computer science in college and was one of the first people sort of to ride that wave and wound up selling, uh, how old old is your dad today? He is in his late sixties. So this was like 40 years ago he was doing computer science like before the yes desktop computer. Exactly. exactly. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. Did he uh did, did he continue along that path for a while in the kind of computer software industry? Yeah, exactly. So he was in that until probably about 10 years ago. Um selling specifically computers and other type of hardware and software and doing some import and export stuff. But since then has sort of pivoted into 
let's call it like semi-retirement, more focused on you know a couple of real estate, uh, you know, a couple of houses that we have in our in our hometown. Um, and you know, my mom has been just like this rock solid character as well. Like I always, you know, assume and, and even just like talking now, it seems like my dad is the biggest influence. But as I get older, I I realize that my mom is just as big of an influence on me as well. She's just one of these rock solid human beings that has the highest EQ of anyone I've ever met. Mm. And just people love to talk to her and she has an amazing amount of like sensitivity, ask the right questions and all that things. And and yeah, I just respect her so much. Similar to your wife? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who has also a extremely high EQ. Yeah, you have an amazing wife. Uh, she sent me a text this morning um, basically wishing wishing us well on this podcast, wishing me well on this podcast journey and, and had a lot of great thoughts. It really made my day. Um, yeah, she's got a, she's got a great spirit about her. Why, why do you, why do you tell us? Um, I, I know the story, but maybe we can get into some of the details. How did you meet your wife? <laughs> so I met my wife at Burning Man. This was in 2016. So that festival in the desert that you you all have probably seen some pictures of. So is this your first time at Burning Man? My first time ever, and I knew that I had a feeling going into it that my life would change in some way. I knew that it, it was an experience that I f- was almost like afraid of. It was out of my comfort zone, like going into the middle of the desert. Um, but I knew that it was going to be something powerful. Would meet some amazing people, have some amazing thoughts, and that maybe it wind up changing the direction of my life in one way or another. And and sure sure enough, it did. Day four of the week in Burning Man. Um, I'm having lunch in our like mandala, which is this tent that our that our camp had set up. And I see my best friend who I went with, Oliver, Oliver English, amazing dude, um, at a lunch table with a couple of people, including this just <laughs> gorgeous blonde girl um, who just had this like radiant energy. And he called me over to the table, sat down, started talking to her and Really, just <laughs> fell in love almost immediately. But you know, wanted I, to. I get- remember when you came back to Brazil. Yeah, we were at dinner at this. Uh, you know, we we haven't done it in a while, but we used to have Sunday dinner was pizza night for the friend group. Yep, for a long time. Yep, and we we went we were at pizza at Atalda Pizza. I don't even know if that place is open anymore. And you just got back from Burning Man, I think that day or like the day before, and you're like, I, I found the one. Yep, absolutely. And you know, I I was single up until that point pretty much my my entire life. Like I had dated a little bit here or there, but I knew that I was searching for for the one. And I, you know, at that point was almost 30 and you know, people are like, "Oh, like you think you'll settle down or at least get someone like American a chance guy, or something like this." Bachelor running a business in Brazil. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But but the whole time, I mean, I I would go out and I would travel and go out to parties and and certainly enjoy, you know, my time and but I, I was always after, you know, finding the one. And I think over time it became clear to me that the 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 person, the the girl that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with was probably where I was going. Mm. Like somewhere in, at some point in the future. So if I had to I had to sort of just do the things that I was wanting to do and evolving towards and that she would be in one of those places. And and sure enough, like when I when I found her, it just sort so, of so instead of looking for the perfect woman, you were saying I, I need to position myself to 
to be able to find her and be, be living the life that I need to be living. Exactly. Just like go out and do the things you you like to do and don't think about, you know, necessarily like finding the one. Just like go out and go do those things that you like to do. And if you feel like your your life is taking you in a certain direction, go in that direction. Mm. Because that's gonna be the closest to your reality from that point forward. So you go to Burning Man, you come back, you're in love with this woman, and and then what happened? Well, so even before that happened, so I think the falling in love with her was actually like the next day when I asked her just a couple of questions, which was like, just describe a perfect day for you. And, you know, what do you like to do? And it was just, you know, it was just like such a perfect match for for what I believed in uh, and how to live life, really. And, you know, I, I, we, we exchanged, well, we didn't really exchange contact. I found her uh, <laughs> on, uh, on Instagram, actually, after sent her a direct message, and we started sort of talking there for for several months, but in a more like long format, where it'd be like a, a letter written from one person to the other, like, "Hey, this is what I've been up to this week. This is what I'm thinking. This is where I'm traveling to." And then, you know, we'd get a response a few days later, and 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 vice versa. You know, I'd, I'd read it, digest it, and, and send a thoughtful response. So we did this for a while, and then eventually. Um, we're able to meet up. She was living in Denver at the time. I was living in Sao Paulo. We met up in Florida at one of her friend's weddings um, and met up there that weekend. Then a couple weeks later, met up in New York City and then was able to convince her to come down to Brazil and were you know, sort of falling in love, dating, spend 10 days together in Brazil, amazing road trip, and she gets pregnant. <laughs> and this is one of those, you know, moments. Surprise. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those moments where we kind of are just looking at each other and we're like, whoa, this is this is not planned. This was not easy. And eventually the the decision was made to let's get married, let's get you down here in Brazil and let's let's live our life. Let's do this. You got you guys have an incredible relationship. Like what is what are the what are the secrets to Maintaining and building that successful relationship. Oof, I, don't, I didn't even know we were going to go down this path. But. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know that there are any secrets or or shortcuts. I think that there is, there has to be mutual respect. There has to be love and understanding, um, and commitment. And I think that if you have those things in place, you can make a lot of the other things work. Um, it's, you know, you talk to anyone who's who's married. There's no shortcuts. There's nothing about it that's like super easy either. Like we, we do have an amazing relationship, and I feel extremely blessed by that. But I don't know that I can, you know, give somebody some sort of life changing advice on how to have amazing relationships. It's just <laughs> you just work towards it. Yeah. So uh, on the topic of coming to Brazil, she came down here. How long has it been? Five years. Yep, five years. And you've been here how long? Ten years. Ten years. How, how did you end up here? Because wow. I, 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 we might have, we might have arrived like right around the same time. I got here December of twenty twelve, so almost ten years ago. So I got here in January of twenty thirteen. Okay, yeah, we wow. were like a month after. And so we met a couple years later. You know, I, when you said that we met, what was it, seven years ago? And I said, wow, it's because I can't believe it's been that long but, yeah. but also on the other hand I feel like I've known you forever um, so the Brazil story I guess the the backstory which is somewhat important is 
you know, like I said, my, my, my father's from another country. So I sort of already had this international mentality, I guess, more than a lot of, you know, purebred Americans. And, uh, when I was in college or even in high school, it was clear to me that I wanted to do something around, you know, impact investing. Um, I was really interested in business, but wanted to make an impact. And, you know, over time, uh, all my friends in college that were undeclared majors, by the time they were, you know, juniors had already, um, had decided that they wanted to go into business sort of all of a sudden. It was sort of frustrating for me because I was like, did you have a major? Yeah, I studied, I studied business undergraduate. I, I knew that I wanted to do that in high school. And so all of a sudden everyone was, you know, applying to the same jobs as me and had the same interests, you know, out of nowhere. And, um, Talking to so two two things happened. A couple of my friends in my fraternity um, were from international countries. Uh, one in Puerto Rico and two in in Costa Rica, and so that sort of influenced me. Like, ah, oh, this is super, these guys are super interesting. I would love to like visit them and know what their life is like and all that. And then the second thing is my brother. Had you spent any time out of the country at that point? Not really, like a little bit. Of, I mean, I traveled a, a, a little bit, but my brother, my older brother Paul, had uh, studied abroad. And he had a summer internship at JP Morgan. And he came back and he was like, dude, I have one piece of advice for you. I walk around the like the trading floors and all the around the building. I got to know everybody. And I can tell you this, like the one that seems the most interesting and intriguing is like the Lat M desk. It's like if I could just hang out there, it seems like it'd be more intellectually stimulating, more international, more flavor, like a lot more just like sort of different things for you to learn and explore and grow. And so He's like, why don't you, you know, really commit to learning another language and, and study abroad? I think it could be your differential, and then you'll be different from, you know, yeah. uh, these people that are all of a sudden becoming like the know, the million other people on Wall Street. Exactly, exactly. And so, and and that was that was always my vibe. I always wanted to be a little bit different, and um, and so I started studying Spanish at school at Cornell. Did a summer abroad in Spain. Loved it. Like learned Spanish. Like had an amazing time uh, with an internship there. And wanted to go, let's call it like one level uh, of difficulty higher. So I was like, okay, let's go. Portuguese? <laughs> Not quite yet. I was like, okay, let's take the Spanish into South America, emerging mm-hmm. market. Spain is Europe at the end of the day. And so did a semester in Chile my junior year. And I thought I was, and at that point I was pretty convinced that at some point after college I was going to want to uh, live abroad and work abroad. I was like, this is this is cool. I like being out of the country, speaking another language, getting to know new people, exploring. You know, I'll have the rest of my life to to live back in the states and start a family. But let's let's do this for a couple of years. And I thought that Argentina would probably be the best place to do it. Maybe Colombia, but Spanish speaking, I had learned the language. Had you been down here before, Latin America? Just to study abroad in Chile. That was it. And during my study abroad uh, time in Chile, wound up going, my parents came to visit, we wound up going to Buenos Aires, and we were supposed to be like three or four days, and then I was going to go back to study abroad in Chile, and that was it. In, in Buenos Aires, we go to see a tango show, and we get sat at a table with a couple other people, and I specifically get sat next to a couple that is Brazilian. And they're like talking to me like, hey, what are you doing here? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, I'm studying abroad in Chile. They're like, oh, Chile, that's that's kind of cool. But like, what about what about Brazil? <laughs> like, you should come check this out. I'm like, oh, I, I, you know, I got to go back and study. And they're like, no, you're not. And the girl like looked me in the eyes and said, you're not going back to Chile. You're going to go to a place called Florianopolis. And you, <laughs> and, and you are going to love it there. And the girls are going to love you there. And you're going to have the best time of your life and just spend a couple of days there. And then you can make your decision on like where you want to you know, That's live. the first place I lived in Brazil it was 17 in Fl- years ago. Yeah, exactly. And so I wound up there, my first night there, I'm like get invited to a party. It's like reggae on the beach, like 
beautiful girls. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like just like super chill vibes. It's like amazing, amazing times. And I kind of was laughing at myself, like, wow, I just spent, you know, four years <laughs> learning a couple, like four years learning Spanish. And uh, now I've got to learn Portuguese because this is definitely like this the, is my place. This is the place to be. Like this opportunity professionally is way bigger. Like the economy is gigantic and growing. There's plenty of inefficiencies and problems to solve. The people are incredibly nice and welcoming, mm-hmm. especially to farmer foreigners. So for a bunch of different reasons, Brazil just made sense. Uh, but at that time, I had already had and accepted an offer to work at Goldman in New York. And uh, so I honored that and I started there and worked my tail off for a bunch of years and had an absolutely amazing experience uh, in the investment management division, learned a ton. Um, but a lot of my free time was dedicated to learning Portuguese. Oh, so you you said, okay, I'm going to learn Portuguese and then eventually go to Brazil. Exactly, exactly. So I lived in New York for three years with that intention in mind. And uh, did Goldman Sachs bring you to Brazil? No. So at the time, I thought that that would be the the easiest way to to make the jump. But Goldman in Brazil is actually quite a small operation. And in the at the exact moment that I was ready, so I had fulfilled sort of my duties as as an analyst and was going into sort of associate. They were downsizing the office in Brazil, and so when I got to speak with like the general managers and stuff, they were like, "Hey, dude, we're." We have to fire some people that are like from here. It'd be really hard to fire an extra one just to bring in, you know, a, a foreigner. So it was actually a, a blessing in disguise. I wound up having to look for other opportunities in in Brazil and wound up finding the the right one that did bring me down. Yeah. So what what ended up bringing you down? So it was to work for a private equity fund called Tarpon, mm-hmm. and it was for a specific program that they had created that was like. <laughs> this is one of those things that I've had a few moments in my life where you kind of know it when you see it. And and this is one of those things, like as soon as I saw it, it was like Brazil. It was like as soon as I saw it, and my wife was like, you know when you see it. You should, I just know it when I see it. And I was like, okay, this is it. Like this is the thing. And then when that happens, like all of my energy goes into to making that thing happen. Um, and so, on, on a quick side note sure. on, on that, like, uh, is that a recurring theme in your life mm-hmm. where yep. uh, making a decision? It turns out to be quite easy because it's like clear in your in your mind. It's it's, it's there. It's yep. It's obvious. Yeah. It's it's it, there's usually like a bunch of factors that sort of come together, and then some sort of moment and recognition where like this is the thing, and I want to dedicate my life to this because I'm so passionate about it. And it's happened at a few different times in my life. We'll, we'll get to Courageous Land in a little, yeah, exactly, in a little bit. But yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that was one of those moments, I'm sure. Sure, sure. But yeah, no, it started happening when I was when I was a kid, like with ice hockey, you know. And then when I was later on in you know in high school, uh, had the opportunity. I had learned about you know boarding school and prep schools, and so I was like, okay, I want to you know try to get out of you know public school and go to like a boarding school in in, in New England, and that could help jumpstart my career and get me this into was like an a, Ivy League school. This was then, never yeah. a thought for me growing up. Yeah. What was the what was the appeal to boarding schools or prep schools? What what is the difference between a boarding school and a prep school? Yeah, so so they're they're essentially the same. I mean, boarding just means that you're able to live there as well. And you know, growing up and playing hockey, there was a couple of friends that wound up going to these schools because they're feeders into the top programs and even into the NHL. And so my buddy Stewie, um, who I grew up playing with, he had went on to from our hometown in New Jersey. He had went on to a, to Choate in in Connecticut. And when he got there, he called me a couple of weeks later. He's like, dude. You're gonna love this here. Like t- most of the people here are going into top schools. If you just study hard, like this will be your your ticket to to a different sort of trajectory in your life. 
And so I studied my studied my butt off and applied and, and got in. And once I was there, I was like, okay, I want to study undergraduate business in college. I would love to go to Ivy League school and sort of identified Cornell as like the, the right fit for me for a bunch of different reasons, the size of the school, location, and um, and, and sort of made that happen. So that thing, then the sort of Spanish and living abroad, Goldman was also one of those. And then Tarpon, this program was basically where you could work in a rotational um, sort of program where you'd work at the fund level mm-hmm. and then inside of two portfolio companies for value creation uh, initiatives. Kind of like a, like an internal consultant or? No, like actually like, yeah, it's sort of, but but hands-on. Like you would actually, because we we owned these, the, the fund owned a couple of different businesses. Just go in there and get your hands dirty and yeah, help like, the company yeah, take on a role. Exactly. And so, you know, the first the first uh, thing was at the fund level, and we we worked on you know raising money from Australian and Japanese sort of like pension funds and, what, and training. What, what companies. kind of fund size was this, more or less? Uh, about a four billion dollar okay. uh, U.S. dollar fund. So it was one of the biggest funds in Brazil. Yeah, and um, and then you know went into a renewable energy company to, for a value creation initiative related to structured finance, and then. The second opportunity was one that I had sort of identified, which was we had owned uh, a large Brazilian fashion group mm. and saw the opportunity that there was no really known Brazilian retailers um, that were in the fashion space outside of Brazil. And everywhere, and Brazil has this amazing brand of being colorful yeah. and alive and sexy and all that. It's like, there, there's an opportunity here. And so opened up the sort of international and, and global arm for Totally, totally true. By the way, I'm working in the clothing industry now in Brazil, the wholesale clothing industry, and uh, I brought this entrepreneur down from Colombia last week, who's very much in in the, in the fashion world. And we were walking around the wholesale district here in Sao Paulo, and her she was like at Disneyland because, and she was like, "Yeah, Brazil has this style that nowhere else in the world has." I didn't even know that. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's so inspired by nature, which is yeah, which is so true. special. Like you see some of these things and like the colors and the stamps. It's like only these you know flora and fauna that exist down here, and it's so special. And so anyway, that that opportunity arose, and um, and so yeah, it's just 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 a great opportunity to come down into to Brazil, and that's that's why I made the jump. So so how long were you at Tarpon? So it was overall about three years. Um, about the last year and a half was in was in Morena Hall as this fashion group, and the first half of the the stint was at the fund level and in the energy company, the renewable energy company. And then from there, you went to LTK. That's right. That's right. Which used to be called Reward Style. Reward Style. That's right. Yep. Tell me about tell me about that. So, I got a call from my buddy Chris Livingston, who's a Who's a venture capitalist, growth growth equity investor out in in California, saying, "Hey, dude, I just got out of a meeting um, with these amazing entrepreneurs, like this unbelievable company called Reward Style, and um, we're thinking about investing in them. And when I asked them about use of proceeds, one of the things that came up was that they would like to go into Latin America. And when we asked them why they haven't done it yet, it's, they said they hadn't found the right person yet." Bingo. <laughs> when, and when Chris asked them what the right person, you know, what would the profile would be, they're like, well, me to fail. Yeah. The guy. <laughs> it was like, well, they're like, well, ideally we would like an American that, you know, understands the fashion industry in Brazil um, and has some experience like operating company, but could also sort of look at things from a value creation initiative and <laughs> take it from there. And Chris was like, okay, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you in touch with somebody. And you know, a couple couple months later, I was on a plane to Dallas to meet Amber and Baxter, who are the founders there. And cool. The rest when, when did is, the when did the, when did the company start? 
the company started in 2011, so it's uh, 11 years old now. And I met them seven years ago. Uh, so it was four years old at the time. And it was already a, a great business. It was on its way. But they had so much more to go, and they weren't in you know most of the world yet. So you started spending some time with them, said, let's do this in Latin America. Th- then what happened? So yeah, so I, I actually, the first thought was that, Wow, this this company could go into Latin America, but there's also a, a bunch of other companies I'm you know seeing on the internet or people that I know that have a model that could work in Latin America. Um, and so my original idea was to start a sort of consulting slash private equity firm where I could help a co- like me and a team of people could help a couple of different companies enter into the Brazilian market mm-hmm. and help operate the businesses, um, supply some of the capital needed for for a regional expansion. And wind up with with equity in, in the business and, and build it out. And I thought that this would be like a really special first step. I really wanted to focus on on impact companies, and I saw that this would be one that could actually generate a lot of value for entrepreneurs in the region, specifically female entrepreneurs. And so, essentially, I pitched them on this idea of like consulting, and they, you know, Baxter was like, "Hey, um, okay, we can we can go forward with this, but just FYI, like I don't want a consultant. I want someone to run the business here." Yeah, and I was like, "Okay, I won't I won't let you down. We'll figure out how that works." But like, you you can trust me that we're like if the, if the things look positive, if the market research makes sense and the business plan I write makes sense, then we'll make this happen. Mm-hmm. And when I had done the market research and the business is essentially um, influencers driving sales to e-commerces and receiving a commission on top of that sale, but these influencers, these micro entrepreneurs are completely autonomous and they use our technology and tools to create content that will drive those sales. Mm-hmm. And when we wrote the business plan, we said, you know, Brazil is a good place for this. Is Brazil like like the best or one of the best influencer markets in the world? It is. It is one of the best influencer markets in the world. But there's two main uh, things that need to happen in order for this to work. There needs to be the influence and there needs to be the e-commerce. And e-commerce penetration in Brazil at the time was super, super low. Mm-hmm. And it and it's, was growing at a sort of decent pace, but then it really took off during during the pandemic. And so, anyway, the 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 business model was attractive, and decided to jump in as country manager and scrap my plans uh, to to be to have a sort of a consulting or a private equity shop and just really focus on building this, getting that experience of actually like running this business for a number of years and and really. Uh, being responsible for it, full stop. Yeah, would you say um, like your experience at Goldman, your experience at Tarpon, and then was it seven years at LTK? Yep. Um, what, what were the moments that I guess gave you the confidence to say, I'm going to go start a company? Uh, what were the, the leadership lessons at, at these various places? I, I assume LTK was like, by far, uh, the the place where you probably just learned a ton about what what you know how to be a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I would say that out of all the places, that was the place I, I learned the most. It was a really good combination of having autonomy in the sense of being like an entrepreneur. Like I was responsible for Latin America. Had you were, full trust. Who were you reporting to? Reporting to the CFO generally. Okay. Yeah. Up in the U.S. Up in the U.S. Yeah. And so I had like full responsibility, full stop. Ton of autonomy, but also had enough guidance, and that's where that's where it made the made the difference. And, and you have to do like it wasn't just like running a sales team; like you had to like set up the legal entity here. Yep, exactly. Like go through all that BS bureaucracy that that we've all dealt with here in Brazil. Exactly, you you know this well, Derek. It's uh, 
it's not easy. And you know, there's a saying that Brazil is not for beginners. And it's it's they, good they to say this about New York, don't they? But it's like, man, Brazil's got to be like ten times harder than New York. It, it is, but it, it the the way to get through it, as you know, is through having a good network of people that have done it before. Yep. That know the the lay of the land, and so you know, reached out to a bunch of friends, was able to get it set up, and you know, had a enough support and money from like corporate headquarters to do it the right way, which was, which was huge for sort of a first um, foray into entrepreneurship uh, or entrepreneurship in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that I would have the check-ins, there would be direction. And I guess what I learned most was, well, I, I think two things. One was around culture and the way to treat people. Amber Baxter, Murray, Jeff, these are some of the like class act human beings and just the way that we interacted over the course of the seven years, like there was never anything but just like full respect and let's build this. And if there was some challenges that came up, it's let's solve this. And there's no, you know, yelling or finger pointing or anything like that. It was just, just like good vibes, you know, through and through despite high high respect culture. Yeah. High respect culture. There's, it was just, I had never experienced something like that. You know, it was really, really special and learned a ton. And I and I bring that culture to the to the company I founded recently. Um, I think that was number one. And then number two, uh, Jeff, my current boss, uh, Jeff Dawson, unbelievable guy. He was the CFO that took Match.com public, did the whole roll up, like bought Tinder yeah. and a bunch of other companies, and then and then took it public. And so I reported into him for the last couple of years, and uh, just. Again, management style, like same thing that I was just saying, but also just the way it was organized around objectives, around keeping things that are priorities, priorities, and <laughs> just the the simple things of sort of how to manage, like the cadence of check ins, what needs to be, um, I guess, raised up, and what other things can be sort of ignored for a little bit to focus on those others. And so, just learn. I, I, I know, I know some people that work for you. Everyone has, says great things. Like, what is you, do you have a management philosophy? Well, I would say just making sure that the the mission is clear in everyone's mind so they know exactly the direction we're all heading in. I think that looping people in and oversharing on information is also important. It's really motivating for younger people to understand what's happening at the corporate level. Yeah. Um I think that's hugely yeah, we're motivating. All, we're all adults here. We're not mm-hmm. trying to hide anything from you. Everyone's got all the information for the most part. Yep. Ownership mentality. Yep. I think I think that's huge. Uh, and again, I think just you know, every other week check in. Sometimes every week, depending on how much is going on with with people, give them a solid like forty five minutes or an hour. Have a rolling document on Google Docs where you can just keep track of the main priorities. See how they're making progress. If them if something comes up midweek, drop it into that document. So that way they know there's something else that's that needs to be prioritized, and that's it. Like the, that, that's the main style. And I think that people want autonomy as well. They don't want to be micromanaged, and that's also uh, a, an important part of keeping people happy. How, and the how do you second, they implement that. So I, again, I think that the autonomy is like once they know what they have to do. If that's clear, then they'll do it. And if they're consistently not doing something that's clear. Then autonomy meaning we we're aligned on the objective. Yep, you figure out how to do it. Yeah, and you just like again, you you check in every two weeks and say, hey, hey, over these next couple of weeks, I think like these are the things we should be working on. Do you agree with this? And they're presenting to to you usually, right? Like it's the 
the person who's reporting into the manager that should be running the, the meeting, being like, hey, this is what I've done and this is what I'm going to do next. And you as a manager sort of make adjustments of like, okay, I think, I think you're right or I think we need to adjust a little bit and maybe you should focus on this. And then that's it. And then they go and do it. And then you check in later on. And if for whatever reason there's someone that's just consistently not getting it done, then they're probably not the right fit. But most people are, <laughs> when it's that clear yeah. and you check in every once in a while, then, then there's, no, there's no excuses. Um, and then the other thing that I will add is I th- I'm a big believer in, in paying above market and paying people as much as you can because at the end of the day, like we all spend so much money on, you know, either advertising or travel or whatever corporate expenses happen, and you could just cut like a piece of that and give it to your people. They're going to be so much happier and stay so much longer. Mm. And, and and the 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 cost of having to fi- like find new people because somebody left because you didn't pay them an extra little bit is it's just time consuming. Yeah, one one thing I found is if if someone is not properly compensated, then they are distracted at work because, or they're distracted when they're even not at work because they're thinking about uh, their financial situation. So if you can remove that aspect of their stress, uh, then they can just do much better work. Exactly. I am a firm believer in that. It's, And I think that's across the board. It's like people that work with you at your company, but it's also, you know, any other type of people you come across, I think they need to be fairly compensated. Awesome, Phil. Let's talk about Courageous Land. Uh, we have these beautiful background photos, by the way. What are we, what are we looking at here? <laughs> so we've got three photos here. This one you're looking at is a bunch of fruit that was collected at our farm in Bahia. Yeah, you told me before. I, I thought these were stock images because you guys have amazing design, but these these photos are all... From your farm? That's that's right. So this is this is from my co-founders uh, farm, Gilberto and Luisa. They started this one in 2011 in the Brazilian state of Bahia, and we're looking at uh, a picture that has cacao, which is uh, cocoa, uh, which makes chocolate. Uh, it's a beautiful large fruit. Um, cupuaçu, which is I think my favorite, and not very well known outside. Which of one is cupuaçu? This one over here. And, and is that the one that's related to the cacao? Yep, exactly. They're like they're like cousins because because mm-hmm. I've had cupuasu, it looks like chocolate. So yeah, so the the both the cacao and the cupuasu have a bean or a seed. That's what you make the chocolate out of. Okay, but they also have the pulp, which is the fruit, the fleshy part that you would eat. They're massive fruits, and they have distinct tastes, and they're both quite wonderful. And I think that there's a, a place <laughs> for for the fruit to take off as well. And then we also have coconut, um, black pepper, clove, turmeric, uh, banana, and yeah, I think, oh, and acai right there. Maybe we're jumping the gun here, but uh, I feel like in a traditional farm, you would not see that much of variety in one image. Yep, exactly. And, that, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that. So, so tell me what Courageous Land is. Um, what, what, what problem are you solving? Uh, yeah, tell me about it. So the mission of the company, and this sort of came to me over over time. Um, well, the, the mission came before the company. So just seeing what was happening in the world, climate change, um, inequality, health issues, you could just see that there were some tipping points that were being crossed in a, in a bad way. Mm. And I realized, and this again was like a, a quote from my brother, that I had, you know, Still, thirty or forty years left to work. I mean, like nowadays, people are easily working until sixty-five or seventy-five, and so I'm thirty-five years old. I've got thirty or forty years left to work. Yeah, 
And if you focus on something for that period of time, you can actually make a difference. You can move something forward. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I wanted to make a, a really positive impact in the world because up until this point, at least from a nature perspective and a climate perspective, my impact was negative. This is a realization that I had. You know, just like everybody, I you know drive around in a car, travel on airplanes. Sometimes I get delivery that comes with a bunch of packaging, and so I cared about climate change. I cared about what was going to happen to specifically the poorest people on Earth in areas where all of a sudden there's going to be less rain that they depend on to live, or too much rain where it will wipe out their house due to flooding because of these sort of unstable um, climate effects. Let's call it. Um, and I had sort of cut down my meat consumption. I was talking to people about this stuff, but I wasn't actually making a difference positively. Uh, in fact, it was negative. My, my existence was negative. If I, if I wasn't born, it would have been better off for planet Earth was the realization I came to. So I'm just using resources, basically, putting carbon in the atmosphere. And this is true for pretty much everybody, by the way. It's, but it's like I, I had this reflection that cl- climate change was my fault and I needed to do something about it. And so, well, When was this? This was in 2000, like, yeah, 2019 to 2020, like right, right. around New Year's. Basically. Yeah, I remember when we started, when you started talking to the friend group about this idea, and it was, it's it's been evolving over the last couple of years, I guess. Yep, exactly. And at, and at first, I started, you know, so I looked for a solution to to solve these problems, and first went down the path of sort of alternative meats, then went down to, uh, the path of reforestation, and eventually discovered the niche of reforestation called agroforestry, where you are essentially reforesting with productive species. What does that mean, productive species? So all species that will provide either food, spices, ingredients, timber, in addition to to sequestering carbon and all of the services for the ecosystem that those trees do. So in a traditional reforestation project, you'll be on-site for maybe the, the first three years. You plant them, you establish them, you make sure they get to a certain size where the chance of mortality after that declines significantly by year three. And then you may never go back there again um, because you've reforested it and that's it. This is different because we're planting things that you're going to want to harvest and that the world needs. And why is this solution interesting? Because and when you say reforestation, this yeah. is, t- t- tell us what reforestation is. Yeah, sure, sure. So you're, we're taking areas that are, have been previously deforested. So they this used to be like, forested. This is like in the Amazon? In the Amazon and in the Atlantic rainforest, which is along the coast of Brazil. So there's a forest. Farmer comes in, says, I want to monetize this land that mm-hmm. is currently a forest. They happen to own the land. They chop the trees down. They start farming. Exactly. They, they, they chop the trees down. Um, so it's usually a three-step process. First, they take, they, they'll, they'll buy the forest, which is cheap mm-hmm. because it's a forest and it's cheap because who owns it? Is like this is, does the government own this? Or are they buying cheap. it from who? No, it's, it's, sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's a large landowner. But forest is cheap because it's currently not producing any income. Okay. And it's hard to make it produce income theoretically. Um, legally, let's call it. So yep. what they'll do is they will buy this land at cheap. They will illegally um, take out the most valuable tree species and sell that timber. So we're talking about like some trees that are 200 years old. I mean, tons of beautiful wood. So like the quickest way to monetize that land is cut down the trees, sell the wood. It's a three-step process, unfortunately. And you can make a bunch of money doing it all illegally. Uh, you buy, you basically chop down the the, the valuable timber, mm-hmm. sell it. Step two: wait for dry season. Once there's no valuable timber left, light it on fire. Essentially, take the rest of it down. 
and all of a sudden you have a one-time gain of like soil fertility there that will immediately disappear. So, so help me understand ashes. that because from yeah. um, you, you see these people that these farmers that burn the land, mm-hmm. and from what I know, it's burning the land helps the soil somehow. How, how does all that work? Yeah, so, so you're taking all of the nutrients and the biomass from the trees and you're bringing it down to the soil for a, okay. a sort of one-time gain. And now all of a sudden you have this land there that's been deforested and it's been burned down and you can plant some crops there. And the most common thing to plant there is going to be grasses mm-hmm. for cattle grazing. Okay. okay, so then step two, you plant the grasses for the cattle and you put a fence around the property and all of a sudden, you have two more monetization opportunities. One, you have farmland that you can sell, which is 5x or 10x the price of the forest. Okay. So all of a sudden, you've made money on real estate speculation. Yep. And then last but not least, you can make money on the cattle ranching. And you sell meat or, or milk, basically. And so it's this three-step process that is causing deforestation. Um, and it is essentially summarized by money is causing mm-hmm. deforestation. And so the solution has to be something that can outcompete that from a monetary standpoint. Yeah. In addition to obviously day, better regulation. Yeah. yeah. The, the the economy is the economy. It is what it is. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and you know when I go back to the states, a lot of people ask me like, why are people chopping down the forest? It makes no sense that they not know about climate change and because it's a, it's an opportunity to make money. It's an opportunity to make money, and that's how people are driven for, uh, in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, I don't think you can. You know, donate necessarily your way out of what's happening. I think you need to find amazing business opportunities yeah, that you, are even more lucrative. You can't than create that. infinite nonprofits to solve this problem. You have to create real uh, economic opportunity. Exactly, exactly. But uh, you know, two of the three steps. Well, actually, all three of the steps um, are the reason why agroforestry is so attractive as a solution to combat this. So or in a, a couple different ways, because essentially, if you just do, if you're letting that act, those three activities happen in one place, and then in some other place or even in the same place, you're just reforesting with non non productive species or non cash producing species. Um, not that there, there isn't a place where there's a huge place for just regular reforestation for ecology, for biodiversity, all of those things. Certain areas is maybe not as appropriate for agroforestry, mm-hmm. but if you can replace if you can reforest through agroforestry, all of a sudden you're creating timber, you're creating food, and you're creating real estate opportunities that are actually positive for the climate instead of negative for, for the planet. And so you are able to, over time, shift from the old paradigm, which is destructive and degenerative, to a regenerative paradigm. So if, if currently, right now, 99% of agriculture is either, is, it's called like degenerative in some way, and 1% is regenerative or you know sustainable over time if we can shift that from maybe 90 10 eventually get to 50 50 that's what needs to happen so it's so important that as we're repairing the planet we're also creating the stuff that the world needs anyway and that the world pays for mm-hmm. so you're taking a plot of land that let's use some round numbers here plot of land where a traditional farmer can make $1000 per you know, unit of time, um, and, and it's also like destroying the environment. And you take that plot of land, and you can actually increase the monetary value of it. So instead of making a thousand, maybe you can make two thousand, three thousand, maybe even more than that. And it's not bad for the environment. Is that 
summing it up? Exactly. So I think that there's a few ways to think about it. So you have in areas that are already deforested, and we need to do reforestation. Agroforestry can be the most lucrative way to do it. There are complexities around scalability and operations and selling multiple products because you're doing a biodiverse set of species instead of focused on, you know, I only do coffee or I only do turmeric. And yeah, so, yeah, and maybe you can actually walk us. So maybe you can tell us what, what does traditional farming look like because it's it's yep. kind of like a one D or two D uh, farms. What what is what you guys are doing look like? How how is it different? Help the listener understand what the difference between traditional farming and and what you guys are doing. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So I think that the most farming in the world is is monoculture, which means that there's a single crop grown per area. Okay. And it's two-dimensional in the sense that it's a cornfield. You've probably all driven by one. You look over and it's just corn forever, and it's all at the same height. You know, it's at uh, you know head height or something. Now, if you go to an agroforestry system, specifically multi-strata agroforestry system, that means that you are now using the three-dimensional space in ab- above the agricultural land. So you can have certain things grown at a height of 20 meters or 60 feet that is going to be a Brazil nut, uh, for example. And then below that in the shade, you'll have an acai tree, but also just like it's directly like below how, the tree. How high is the acai tree? Oh, maybe in this case it'll be half of that, let's say. Okay. So 10 meters or 30 feet. And then below that you would have a coffee plant or a cacao, uh, for example, to create, to create chocolate. And so, so you it, can, it's almost like a, it's almost like a city. Exactly. Think about like a like yep. a traditional town that's flat, and you've got a bunch of homes. Versus like New York City, which builds up because you got a that, that plot of land, but you've got a lot of people there. And exactly, exactly. It's it's like a it's like building a building. Now you have to make sure that every species gets the correct amount of sunlight. So certain species in the wild are at the canopy level; they need full sunlight on their head. Now, certain species actually they would die if they got full sunlight because they would have heat stress. They need a little bit of shade, and other ones need even more shade. And so, it's making sure that each species gets the right amount of sunlight, and there you can slot them into where in the agroforestry system they will go. And in this example, I oversimplify that they would be exactly in the same space. There's a certain amount of spacing that you have to put between them to get sunlight, but you can maximize the amount of calories per hectare and the amount of income per hectare versus any other type of agriculture because you are using more volume. Essentially, calories per hectare—is that something you guys are tracking? So we're not—we're not trying to maximize calories per hectare. You could do that, and there are plenty of ways to do that. Um, syntropic agroforestry, for example, is a, is a specific niche of agroforestry that does that. We're working on finding a optimization point between scalability, profitability, and co-benefits that benefit basically biodiversity and humanity. And so we really want to take this to another level where it's not just about maximizing how much per hectare, but also taking into account how many hectares we can restore. So on one plot of land, um, you, you've got land today already. Yep. Um, give, me, give me an idea, like one plot of land, what is being planted there? How long does it take to actually get that ecosystem up and running and uh, thriving and Perfect. So essentially, per hectare, you can consider about a $10,000 investment. And we are planting- $10,000 investment to buy the land? What's that, what is ju- that $10,000 investment? This is just to deploy the, the capex, to plant the trees and establish them until they are mature. Okay. Um, mature meaning that they're not going to die or until, mature until the point that they are uh, basically profitable, let's say. 
So it takes about three years to establish. It's a $10,000 investment. The land itself in Brazil right now varies wildly, but you can consider something along the lines of $5,000 to $10,000 per hectare um, in this, the areas that we're like operating. In the Bahia. Yep, mm-hmm, in the areas that we're operating. Um, and I'll get back to the to the deforestation that's happening and, and more yeah. specific to that, but just going along on the, on the reforestation and the agroforestry. Um, we have basically a combination of a few species that will be able to provide cash flow in the beginning. In our case, we use things like bananas, um, ginger, and turmeric. And we're also just started planting some pineapples. They will produce cash uh, within a year and a half, all of them. Um, in addition, we're simultaneously planting our timber species that are a combination of native species and exotics, but mostly natives. And the timber species that we're planting will all have different harvest cycles. They'll be ready sometime. Some of them will be ready year eight, other ones 15, other ones year 25, other ones year 35, and others still year 50. And they're all planted sort of mixed together to create this forest setting. And the reason that that's important is because we never want to clear cut the forest. We want to- well, What does it mean a clear cut? A clear cut would be if you plant a bunch of timber that's all going to be ready for harvesting on the same day, and all of a sudden you come there and you cut the entire thing down to harvest the timber, you basically eliminated all of the ecological benefits and you have to start over again. It becomes like a clear It's like cut. another 15-year project. Yeah, it's another like 15 or 20-year project. Where if you do continuous cover forestry, which is what we do, you're planting a biodiverse set of species that will be ready for harvest at different times. So you're only at any given moment are selectively harvesting one or 2% of the trees in a given year. Mm. And the forest remains. And when you take those trees away, the carbon that's in those trees, that wood, remains locked away, potentially for generations, depending on the use of it, for fine furniture or construction. And so you've actually now opened up more space for carbon to grow because there's more sunlight availability in the agroforestry system where you can replant or the existing trees can get bigger. And you can actually maximize carbon sequestration if you do harvest timber from time to time. Otherwise, the carbon stock will reach a saturation point by year 25 or 30. So we plant these timber species. And then about a year after that, we plant the things that need a little bit of shade in order to survive well, which are typically, in our case, acai, coffee, cacao, uh, or even limes as well. Okay. Yeah. And is... um like, like, there's got to be infinite fruit and vegetable species out there. Um, is 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 it basically like an algorithm that says the, this is the proper uh, combination of we're, we're going to have to take a plot of land, we're going to put ten things there. This is the proper combination that's going to generate the most output for economically for the environment and so on and so forth. Absolutely. So, so it is a complex um, optimization. Uh, problem solving, you know, riddle essentially, and so you know, ours was based on about ten years of research and development at at the farm in Bahia that that's on the screen right here that my my partner Gilberto has has been so doing. He's been doing this for ten years. Yeah, he's been doing this for eleven years. And, and is how long has this concept even been around? So it's been around forever. It's ancient. When the Europeans uh, discovered the Amazon like 500 years ago, the Amazonian you know, native indigenous people, they have registries of them cultivating actively 300 species simultaneously in some way or another, either for medicine, for food, for fiber, for fire, for whatever. 
they had specifically been managing 300 different species. Do do like Amazonian Indian tribes still do this kind of thing? 100%. They use what what's there, they plant, they manage, they wild harvest. They do all of those things. Absolutely. And, and, and so the the world derailed from that model however many hundreds of years ago when we started building technology and thinking about scale and just easier to do this modern day farming approach or Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the it was the shortcut. It was the way to simplify it. We can get a tractor, we can plug our GPS to it, we can plant a single thing and we can do that and it'll be so much easier. We don't have to work hard. Uh, we don't have to wild harvest. We don't Is have to deal with that complexity. Because of, because of automation? I think that it's a question of um, short-term gains, I would say. like You can have a short-term boom in profitability if you chop down a tree and speculate on real estate, right? But like over time, you can't, you can't continuously do that. That's a one-shot deal, and then you have to move on and go do it somewhere else. So I think that it's just a lot of short-term thinking around the current agricultural um, tendencies, which are... Um, you could sum up like most of the problems in the world are because of short-term thinking instead of long-term thinking, right? Exactly, exactly. There's gains in the short-term and losses in the long-term, and people are you know, thinking about the short-term. Yeah. yeah, But that's changing, right? and I'm so happy to see it. So uh, your partner's been doing this for 10 years. What would have been, like, what have been the, the early learnings in this first decade? Yeah, so I think a lot of them are around the right design of the agroforestry systems in order to optimize carbon sequestration, which is in order to you know maximize the effect of helping mitigate climate change, uh, in order to drive profitability through the correct species selection, and really understanding sort of the design and the spacing of these things, and also setting them up in a way that you can include mechanization and and you know automation to our to our favor as well. And okay. so the way that we're designing. Things we also want to use uh, automation, machinery, tractors, all these things, so that way we can okay. do it on a very large scale. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Um, organic produce. Why is why is organic better than non-organic? So, I have to give all the credit to my to my wife on this one because as soon as as soon as we started dating, she was like, "Do not eat." Conventional stuff, and certainly once we have our kid, like no way. Essentially, um, the way food is grown in, I'd say, ninety-five percent of the cases right now uh, is using conventional um, pesticides and chemicals uh, and herbicides that are used to kill off potential pests and also to increase productivity. Something that's used to kill a insect is clearly toxic. Yeah. It's something that is used to kill a being that at the end of the day like an it's insect an animal that's just a lot smaller. Yeah, exactly. They're probably like 97% similar to us in terms of like DNA. Yeah. Um and this stuff is like made to just like kill them basically. And so that goes is sprayed all over the crops and then we eat the crops and then we, and then we consume it. And then we consume it and and so there's all these and kind why, of And why doesn't it kill us? It kills us. It, it, it gives us cancer. It, yeah, it does it over long periods of time, I guess. It gives us cancer. Yeah, exactly. And so like, there is um, harm for the people that are working on the farm because they, they are literally spraying this stuff and they're working there. And so there's just tons of cases of sick, not only just like, like long-term sickness, that, that's, that's obviously a big deal, but just like people are just having to call in sick all the time. They're just not well. And there's many, many cases, including in Brazil, like on cacao farms, that once they switch to organic, 
all of a sudden, like the people are just healthier. Like they're feeling better. The people that mm-hmm. work there, in addition to the final consumer. And there was just a study that came out the other day that this stuff is in like everything. Like seven out of ten hekejans, like here in Brazil, which is like cream cheese, yeah. all the meat. Um, like it's it's everywhere essentially. And so you just got to be really careful eating it as an adult, but especially giving it to like a young child over a long period of time. You want to just avoid non-organic food and it's a challenge, right? Like it's, it's more expensive. Not every, like most food is conventional when you're at someone's house or whatever, you got to eat what you got to eat. And so you kind of just do your best, you know, but it's, it's important to try to grow organic and to try to eat organic. Awesome. So, uh, backing up here a couple of years, you started thinking about this problem two or three years ago. Um, you were still running the Latin America operation for LTK. Um, how did you make that transition? What did the last couple of years look like? Perfect. So once I figured out the the mission and then the solution to the mission, I started looking for a co-founder that and could like help the solution to the mission. That was like that was a lot of research, nights and weekends. Totally, totally. Yeah. So I, I was in a fortunate position where I was able to work on this on on the weekends. Nights, mornings. It was what it, it had become a, a huge passion for me. So it was no issue for me to wake up early or go to bed late and, and do this. Yeah. And so I was able to continuously research and work towards finding the, the solution to it. And once I did find the solution, the next step to it was to hire somebody to help me work on this. Mm. So that way, even though I had a full time job and was fully dedicated to that. You know, Monday through Friday, you know, during business hours and beyond that, I had somebody else that was full time on the new project. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I hired Mateus um, almost two years ago, and he's been on it full time since then. What's his background? So he got back to Brazil recently. He has a master's degree from Exeter in mathematical modeling of climate science. Wow! And so he is a smart dude that has background in data. Weather, uh, mapping, modeling, and is just an expert programmer. And in addition to that, um, has a bunch of skill sets that were applicable into the carbon markets as we started to explore this route of revenue to combine with the agricultural revenue. And so I needed somebody that could help with sort of research and figuring out the right way to do this business. And he had that sort of brain to help me do that. His name's Mateus. He's Brazilian. Yep, Brazilian. But was living abroad. Was li- was living abroad. He did his master's degree and then came right back to to Brazil. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, we, when you think about at least when I think about traditional farming, when I even, even look at this amazing photo right here, um, I don't think tech company. I don't think like uh, this is a, this is a science like a super complex mathematical and science problem that we need to solve. Uh, how are you thinking about your team, uh, team construction? What are the areas of expertise that Courageous Land needs to be successful? It's a great question. I think, like the, first of all, the team is everything in, in any business. And we're lucky to have just an extremely talented team. Uh, and so, first of all, I think that the technology piece came out of necessity more than like anything else. We, we we knew that we wanted to do large-scale agroforestry and there wasn't technology to support this, so we started developing it internally. 
and we still develop it mostly internally. That way we and, can and just to give everyone fast. an idea. Lar- when you say large scale, yeah, what does that mean? So our goal is to do three thousand hectares, which is like five thousand acres. Um, actually, actually more than that. Um, by 2025, within the next three years. So okay. it's so it's quite a bit of of land for a single so farming team for a startup. Go. Yeah, three year plan. Yeah, exactly. Like we we have large ambitions and. <laughs> they're unfortunately quite they're quite small compared to the problem mm-hmm. that we're talking about. So even 10,000 hectares is probably like I don't know 3 or 4 days of deforestation in Brazil. And so that's wow. why we need to think about this sort of technology angle so we can scale our own operations but then also make this technology available to other land stewards so that way they can do the same thing. Um and they can do agroforestry in a profitable way. So so going so going back to the team and then sure. we'll, maybe we can talk about the roadmap as well and sure if this is like a 30 or 40 year project which it sounds like it may turn into something like that uh where does where does it go from there but yeah back to the team sure uh who what are the what are the types of people that you need on this team it sounds super complex a lot of different uh areas of expertise that you need to bring to the table totally totally so Gilberto leads our agroforestry like operations um, managing the farm managers right now, we have two farms, and our plan is to add about one mega farm a year for the next couple of years. And when I say mega farm, I mean like a thousand hectares. Yeah. Uh, so Gilberto is like sort of our expert in the design and the management of the agroforestry. Luisa, his wife, who's absolutely amazing and has been with him at the the farm in Bahia for the last eleven years, runs all of sort of the management and operational sort of back office uh, reporting. Um, team structure that's in the field. She's really like his his right-hand person so that way he can focus on the plants and what they need and the the buying of whatever sort of inputs are needed, fertilizers. How how many people are like are like them are out there? There is um in Brazil an increasing amount of people interested in agroforestry. How many people have been doing it for 11 years on a scale more than 20 hectares? A handful. Mm-hmm. Like literally, maybe ten. Yeah, that's it. Uh, as far as we know, um, but there's plenty of people that are doing it on a one to five hectare scale, and they're sort of learning their way. Um, but they've probably been doing it less time. So we've got them. Um, obviously, in the field, there are uh, managers and supervisors, and there's all kinds of activities always happening. Everything from you know weed whacking to fruit picking, uh, pruning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we have our sort of what I call our AI team, agroforestry intelligence team, which is Mateos and Jefferson. So they're on carbon data. Um, we have the drones with lidar that are really capturing data about what's going on in the field. Really? We're doing three G, uh, sorry, three D projections of what our future agroforestry locations will look like, and we can even play around with it in software where we can see positions of the sun and how much shade is going to be going on each plant at different times of the day. So we're we have a lot of sort of tech that goes into the three phases, which is essentially like planning, operation slash monitoring, and then eventually the final stage will be selling as well. But we're far from having a large volume production, um, not not that far. But it's uh, we're not there to build technology specifically around that yet. Um, and then, in addition to that, we have marketing uh, and sort of business development slash sales. By the way, everyone should follow your Instagram page. Uh, at the minimum, it's like very inspiring. Uh, every, every post, the the art is beautiful. I found out today that the art is actually coming from your farms. 
Um, and the message is, um, is amazing. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a very inspiring thing that you guys are working on. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And yes, please follow Courageous Land. And uh, hopefully you guys like the comments. How did you guys, how did you come up with the name? I mean, the name is almost self-explanatory, but uh, tell me the background there. So when decided that I was going to go forward with this, this, or when I was deciding whether or not I should go forward with this endeavor and like really go out on my own and, and be a true, true entrepreneur and start this thing, I started going through different names. I really have always loved this concept of, of land. It's, it's beautiful, it's rugged, it's outdoors. And I thought that that would be a good inclusion. And then I was trying to think about the right complementary word for that. And as I was doing this, I kept going back and forth of like, oh my God, am I really going to do this, this company? I mean, like, this is incredibly difficult. And when, when was this? This was, uh, this was in 2020. So okay. right at the beginning of the sort of pandemic. And because it, it is, uh, man, it's hard to start a company. It is very hard to start a company in Brazil. And with what you're doing, you have to have like multiple uh, yeah, levels courage. of expertise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I was going back and forth on whether or not I should do it. And, you know, especially around, you know, the Amazon and these areas, like there is legitimate danger. And people that speak out against, you know, deforestation and these types of things sometimes get killed, like literally. Mm. And um, it was sort of. Do you have a bodyguard? <laughs> no. Um, luckily, I'm not well known enough yet in the region. I try to keep it that way. But um, but as I was going back and forth and deciding like whether or not I should really do this, like I, I just realized how important this was for for humanity and specifically like standing up for. The poorest people on earth. I mean, like if, if someone like me doesn't do this, then who will? You know? So mm-hmm. I felt a responsibility to do this and I said, you know, fuck it. This is took cool. a lot of courage. So this is, this is courageous land. Let's go. Awesome. Let's talk about uh the roadmap. So the the next three years, um, you kind of laid out the the plan, which is you said five thousand hectares. Three thousand hectares. Three thousand hectares, five thousand roughly Acres, yeah, it'd be a bit more than that. Yeah, um, that sounds very large. Uh, can, like, can you help me understand, um, like, how many football fields is that? Yeah, so one hectare is a football field, almost exactly. Okay, a well, hectare is a hundred meters by a hundred meters. So you're you're developing three thousand football fields of land with how many different? Uh, species of plants, seven to ten species. Uh, some cases up to twelve in any given area you'll find. Yeah, and this is like a three-year plan, which is which also explains why you've been working on this for years now on the side to actually develop it. Like, this is not like a normal. It's not a, a startup in a garage where it's like let's hack together an MVP, go test the market, figure out product market fit. This is like a, a several-year thing in the making, um, and three thousand hectares. Is a is a huge project in and of itself, but it's it's like the three year project, which is like that's early stage still. Um, so where do you where do you where do you go from there? So I mean, for, first of all, again, like the, these are yes, like ambitious, but also such a drop in the bucket in the face of climate change. So like we need to think big, we need to push ourselves, and that's why these these goals that are audacious exist, and we can do this. Like we. We have all of the things in place in order to make this happen, and not only is it important for the planet, it can also be highly, highly lucrative as well, and so important for 
for a bunch of different groups, including the local communities and biodiversity. And so it's sort of just, win, it's a win on all levels. In terms of where we go from there, from 2025 to 2030, our goal is to get to 10,000 hectares from three mm-hmm. um, of our own sort of land and projects, but then really start to lean into the technology and the branding and the sales channels that we've developed to unlock agroforestry and unleash agroforestry for other landowners and land stewards. So that way we can start thinking about landscape level restoration. Like if we can change the way that, for example, coffee or cacao is grown, then we can implement agroforestry on millions of hectares. Because basically what you're saying is we're going to go prove the model with 10,000 hectares and then we've got a blueprint to show to the rest of the world, this is how it's done. We can come in and help you. We can increase your revenue and also make a better product for the consumer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like what, what we want to prove is that, hey, you can do this and you're going to get an internal rate of return, like on a financial investment of 25% per year, compounding, maybe higher, depending on you know certain financial incentives or product, you know, marketing or whatever you can to get this is just sort of baseline scenario. But let's just say whatever, you get 25% uh, return on investment of this, and you can simultaneously basically solve climate change and all of the UN sustainable development goals. There is a ton of money, like I'm talking like trillions of dollars that would just pour into that. Yeah, if anything, just from a branding standpoint, if you're selling avocados that are also saving the climate and they're better for you and they're the same price as the other avocado, no brainer. Absolutely. And and we'll probably get to a point with climate change getting worse and worse and worse with extreme weather events. Like people are like already dying by the thousands in places like Pakistan. And you go on to the droughts of, you know, Western United States and Europe and, and the floodings that happened in Bahia last year. It's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. So you can see a scenario at some point where like certain ways of doing things like they have in the past will just become illegal or highly taxed. And so if we can just prove this model like there that that it can become scalable then all of a sudden the money will flow into it. But right now the bottleneck is not the money, it's the proving the scalability of this concept. Once it's scaled and once it can absorb all of the money, then there is a almost infinite supply of money that can go into this thing to solve climate change. So I assume you need a lot of upfront capital. At what point does this uh, start making money and how does it make money? So it actually starts profitability in around year three. and we ex- Profitability or revenue? Profitability in year three. So we actually get some revenue starting in around year one and a half. And, and where's that coming from? Okay. Bananas, turmeric, ginger, pineapples, these types of sort of annual short cycle crops that are there at the beginning of it, and then they won't be there from from that point forward, essentially. And, and the plan is to actually brand these this produce? So originally, we're going to start mostly on B2B sales just to reduce our complexity since we've got plenty of that. Meaning you're partnering with existing supply chains that are already buying this stuff. Exactly. For the most part, existing supply chains, sell it into a supermarket unbranded as fruit, sell it into a large corporation that wants to do corporate insetting instead of corporate offsetting. And then eventually, we can work our way up towards being known to the consumer as a brand, get into stores, sell through e-commerce, that type of stuff. That opportunity, I think, is going to be very apparent for us as we continue to just tell the story of what we're doing. Yep. And then year three profitable. And that and that's you guys need to prove that obviously, but that's the blueprint then and then take it to the rest of the world. Exactly. So year three profitability starts, year five, you've recovered your investment. But starting year three on, you you have profitability uh, from your initial investment. And if we're comparing this to a traditional farm or the existing plot of land that you're taking over, uh, how much more profitable are we talking? What we're seeing is, <laughs> what we are projecting as we scale this up is that it can be potentially twice as profitable 
especially especially if you include the revenue from carbon credits, mm-hmm. which is the other. Let, let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. What is? Uh, I, I guess walk us through the, the everything. What yeah. what is carbon emissions? What yep. are carbon credits? Okay. How does that how does that play into courageous land? Perfect. So as humanity has industrialized, we have been burning lots of fossil fuels in a bunch of different ways and also deforesting. And these activities release carbon into the atmosphere that are then trapped in the atmosphere. And as sunlight comes in, um, and instead of it sort of reflecting straight out of the atmosphere and going back into outer space, it gets essentially trapped by these greenhouse gases that winds up heating the world. And this this is what climate change is. This is what this is what global warming is. And then as this happens, it starts to change the climate, yep. which essentially can be summarized as increased amounts of extreme weather events. And so these extreme weather events um, are typically increased amounts of drought, but then also flash flooding. They're just extreme on both sides. And then you also have like extreme heat, but then really cold, um, unseasonably cold weather in other in other places. And so as these extreme weather events happen. Um, it really puts people in harm's way, uh, especially the poorest people on earth that don't have the resources to get out of harm's way. Mm. Or if their house is wiped out, they don't have the resources to go buy another house or just go stay somewhere else. Like they're, they're screwed. And so anyway, this is- I, what, I was talking to an entrepreneur mm-hmm. in, in Pakistan today who was part of our Y Combinator group. And he said like the, the whole supply chain there is totally screwed up right now. Exactly. And and this is causing this is just the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately. And it's accelerating. So it's gonna get worse and worse and worse every single year. Um and we can get into to that. And I think there's some massive entrepreneurial opportunities around um not only climate change prevention, but also just like preparing for its inevitability. Yeah. So 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 back back to the the carbon sure. emissions and then carbon credits and, and how does sure. that relate to courageous land? Sure. So carbon credits is essentially if you remove one ton of CO two from the atmosphere. And you sequester that, then you get a carbon credit. When it's the you equivalent say sequester, of one, what does that mean? Removed from the atmosphere and locked, lock it away. So this could be in the form of growing a tree that, through photosynthesis, creates carbon, takes carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it into the biomass of its of itself. Okay, and it stays there. And this carbon, you can calculate how much has been removed from the atmosphere, and if for each one ton removed, you can get a carbon credit. So that way, in a very do you specific, understand how that calculation is calculated roughly? Yeah, you, you can see that you know forty eight percent of the dry weight of a tree on average is carbon. Okay. Is the is the chemical element carbon? Uh, and so um, anyway, so so we have essentially the the model for what a carbon credit is. There's also so when a company is emitting a ton of CO two and they can measure that through their greenhouse gas reporting, essentially. So okay, they burned a bunch of fossil fuels. We all do it, you know. I, every company in the world, every company, yeah. do every every person in the world. And that's what I think. Like, people don't take self responsibility at all. They're looking at the corporations. They're looking at the governments. But like, dude, you're you. Well, everyone kind of, has a carbon footprint. Yeah, it's kind of like. Yeah. It's kind of like voting. It's like I don't need a vote. My vote is not going to matter. Exactly, but it does. Yeah, and and so the same thing with carbon. I think it's like step number one is like look at your own carbon footprint. And then you can say like, okay, wow, wow, I took an Uber to to get here to the podcast. Say I was in a gas car. Like, pff, what am I doing to compensate that? You know. And mm-hmm. so anyway, so there's these companies that are all, that are emitting ten you know tons of CO two into the atmosphere. They want to be carbon neutral. They need to go buy a 
carbon credit from someone that is sequestering or removing 10 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. There's also carbon credits related to avoided emissions. So if you have a baseline scenario of deforestation going on, for example, where we operate in Hodaima in Brazil, and we know that as you light that that forest on fire, you're going to release a lot of atmos- a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, and you can see what the historical baseline is if you don't do any action, and then you go ahead and buy land and protect it, then you can get compensated because you are doing better than the baseline. You've had zero deforestation in an area that's losing you know one percent of carbon. Uh, into the atmosphere per year. And so you can get a carbon credit for that as well. And, and who is the, um, is, there like a, is there like a global regulator that says this is a carbon credit, this is not, we are going to you know, give you that credit? How does that work? So there are regulating bodies that go through painstaking work with scientists to create protocols and methodologies that you must follow in order to produce documentation that shows that your carbon credit is legitimate and additional, uh, meaning that it wouldn't have happened otherwise without this carbon project and that it is a legitimate offset, essentially. And through this, um, the scientific community will approve the methodology. Mm -hmm. For example, on Vera, American uh, Gold Gold Standard, American Carbon Registry, Regen Network. And you will be able to get approved after being audited of whether or not you followed the rules and this is a legitimate project, yes or no, and then you will be able to issue a carbon credit and then you can sell that carbon credit to whoever wants it and then they can hold and, on to it as an asset. folks that are buying can, a carbon credit, these are companies that are producing carbon emissions, they want to they wanna offset those um, and be more responsible and so they go to some sort of a marketplace, buy these carbon credits, and now they're kind of in, in good standing. Exactly, exactly. So it could be a corporation, it could be an individual, it could be even a government. But essentially, they want to buy these carbon credits. Now, once someone buys a carbon credit, they typically will retire it, meaning that they've used it to offset some emission, and now they make a carbon-neutral claim, and no one else can use that carbon credit again because it's been used to make a claim. Okay. You can also hold on to it as an asset uh, in, in a sort of investment or speculative type of way, mm-hmm. and saying that, like, you know what, in the future, everyone's going to want carbon credits because they're going to see how Is this what our this friend in Europe's doing? Exactly. Okay. So you can buy and hold, let's say, and then you can retire it at some point in the future when potentially the price is higher. Um, and so, anyway, there's a lot of different things happening in the carbon space tied to also Web3 and yeah. financial structuring of all of this. But in terms of how it relates to agroforestry, essentially, as you're planting these trees, you can measure how much carbon you're sequestering mm. versus the baseline of that land continuing as a pasture with no trees on it. And you can sell not only the agriculture, but also the carbon credits. Sell, sell it into the marketplace. Sell it into the marketplace. and Or do other things with it. We see three opportunities, essentially. You can sell it into the marketplace. You can supply somebody that wants carbon credits also, so that way they have corporate insetting. So let's say you're a big corporation, a food company, mm-hmm. and you've measured your carbon emissions and you're emitting millions of tons of CO2. You can go fund random carbon projects, or you can find projects that are within your own supply chain. It's almost like pre-purchasing those carbon credits in partnership with Courageous Land, for example. Exactly. So they'll get our, you know, chocolates or coffees or acai or whatever it is, um, Ah, and the carbon credits. So that way, they're also their supplier. I'm their supplier of both carbon and agriculture products, which is way more interesting for them from a storytelling, from for a million different reasons. And it also creates resilience in their supply chain because agroforestry systems are inherently more resilient and they're less susceptible to climate change, shocks, and extreme weather events. Yeah, And so it actually builds that resilience in their own supply chain. So they have well, also, yeah, better sourcing. We've been seeing this the last few years. The um, 
consumers are demanding this. And so it, it's happening because of consumer demand, right? Exactly. Even if the consumer on an individual basis um, still doesn't kind of take on that personal responsibility, they're holding a, uh, all of these companies that they purchase from accountable today. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've seen that most of the growth um, in the world right now in retail is coming from brands that are marketed as green or environmental friendly. Yeah. So while the world GDP is stagnant or growing at 1%, these brands and these products that are marketed as green, whether they are or not, are growing at a they're growing at a much faster rate and all of the other products that are not marketed as such have zero growth or negative growth. Yep. On in aggregate. And and so the the other interesting thing that can happen with the the carbon credits this is the long game, is that we can have carbon-negative products. So we don't sell the carbon credits. The carbon credits are associated with the product themselves, so that way as a consumer consumes these, they're offsetting their own carbon footprint from their Ubers, from their day-to-day life. Mm. And so all they need to do to fight climate change is to source from agroforestry, from us. Interesting. Or from any other project that has this type of you know, regenerative agriculture. Awesome. You showed me a slide earlier with Courageous Land's impact goals. Uh, I don't know if you want to open it up or if you have it kind of memorized. Um, you know, obviously it seems mostly memorized. Impact is uh, a big theme here, something that you guys are very focused on. Um, maybe you can go over some of those impact goals. Absolutely. So, you know, as we've talked about, everything about this company is, you know, mission driven. And so, when we think about impact, we think about the different things that we can affect at scale. And I think one of the main ones is that in Brazil, so so okay, <laughs> there's plenty of them. But one of the one of the ones that I'm most proud of is around the the rural communities and the places that we that we operate. And so in Brazil and in many places in the world, the poorest people are in the rural areas. Um they don't have good lack. They have lack of access to good education and healthcare and all of these other things, and also very little upward mobility. If their parents are a farmhand on some farm, they can probably assume that they're you know going to have that same type of fate, and they don't see it as very interesting the way it is traditionally done. And so it, they don't have the opportunity. They don't have the income, and they wind up in Brazil's case often going to. The cities, and they also don't have the money, so they wind up in the slums, in the favelas, yep. in these extremely violent really places. Sad. Really sad. And they went from these like what used to be beautiful places in Brazil and nature. All of a sudden, they're in these like dark, um, these dark places. And so, one of our main impact areas is really around empowering and generating income, generating money for these rural communities and having upward mobility and purpose in their work. Mm-hmm. And so we want to generate about $200 million of income for the rural communities. And are you working with communities specifically? Or is this is this about hiring? How do you guys interface with the communities? Perfect. So there's and give me an idea of like what, what are these communities? These are s- small towns? Yeah, so these are small towns, rural areas, small cities in some cases. And essentially, it's a hub-and-spoke type of model. So we have our own land where people can come and work with us and be a part of our company. And one of the major innovations that I'm super proud of is that they will get all above-market wages. I spoke on this earlier that I think it's important to pay people more than the average. And also, all of them will have participation in the profits. 
Very cool. And that is an innovation in Brazil. It's actually everyone, everyone, everyone. in the company is completely aligned on the mission Everyone's and making aligned. money together. Yeah, we make money, the money gets divided up. And so innovation on that sense. And then also um, we are going to, starting in 2023, separate at least 1% of all the food that we grow for Brazilians that are hungry. We read a stat recently that there's 30 million Brazilians with food insecurity, and we're wow. growing a ton of food. And so we want to make sure that a lot of that is going towards people, specifically children, that are don't have access to food, specifically quality food that will actually nourish them, that's organic and, and good for them. And so we have those initiatives around community, uh, around biodiversity, we're going to be measuring biodiversity bounce back. So if you take an area, you can measure how much biodiversity is there at today. And then once you add in agroforestry and reforest, you can measure again in the future. And you can see how much you know biodiversity has sort of come back and you've created habitat for them. Carbon sequestration, that's a very obvious one. Increasing the fertility of the soil. So oftentimes soil is dead in a lot of ways. It's lost the microorganisms that are so essential to the health of a soil. They're what actually breaks down the nutrients and winds up feeding these trees and plants. And so we have... So you're actually strengthening the soil through this process? Absolutely. So we can increase soil fertility. Right now, if you continue the agricultural practices that are happening in the world today, estimates say that you'll have 60 years left of soil and then you won't be able to grow food on those lands. Like, Anywhere, basically. That's not good. Yeah, that's not good. And so we need to start repairing the soil. And the best way to do that is by planting trees. It's like such a natural part of the landscape. It helps retain humidity and moisture. It gives uh, habitat for these microorganisms and the bacterias, and they're fixed onto the roots of these trees, and it starts to just repair the soil in a normal process. And so that's a big one. Um, number of hectares restored is obviously something that we're acutely aware of. And we want to also provide a lot of you know healthy organic food that can replace the conventional stuff. And so, those are just some of the impacts that we're that we're measuring. There are other ones, and then we will be increasingly adding those to sort of annual reports and monitoring those, and working with these world class organizations and universities that are that are top notch in monitoring other co benefits. Very cool. Um, how can people get involved? So I think the first way for your average person to get involved is to really demand and consume agroforestry products, things that come from bio, specifically biodiverse systems. So I think the first step would be organics. The next step would be organics from a place that is polyculture instead of monoculture, meaning that they have multiple species mixed together. As soon as you add two species that are close to each other, the it's like exponentially good for ecology, basically. Like all these ecosystem benefits, habitat, biodiversity, soil correction, like all these things. Also water, water retention. Um, so knowing where you get your stuff from is really important because what we'll do, what this will do is it will drive up the prices for these quality products and it will change the economics in order to make it even more attractive for conventional farmers to switch to more polyculture and organic and regenerative farming. So vote with your dollar. It's a simple choice. It's like figure out where your stuff is coming from and try to not buy things that are coming from which is, know, it's factory, also, factory it's, farms. It's and, also and just it's, healthier, right? Yeah, it's much healthier. But also, yeah, like avoid factory farm. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna eat meat, get it from like rotational grazing farms, like know exactly what their practices are, because that could actually be good for the planet in that way. But like, definitely avoid things that are coming from confined feedlots of like chickens and cows, because essentially, like, they're producing a ton of waste and they're sourcing from monoculture. They're 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 
feed, like their food, is coming from monoculture, you know, soy and corn and grains, and which is just like destroying the planet. And they're full of pesticides, and then you eat you eat those animals, and they go into your body as well. So be very smart about what you're what you're funding, because again, like we're all responsible for climate change. Like it's all our fault. Um, it's not some corporation's fault. It's, it's us as consumers that are just consuming this stuff and and showing the market that that's what we want them to put more money into. So let's show them the other way. And um, yeah, over time, there'll be, I think, a, a ton of different things that we can we can do with with everybody to, to get involved. Like whether yeah, or not like, you have like land other, or you're just a consumer. Yeah, other leaders, entrepreneurs, um, what are the types of partnerships that you, you're going to need to explore kind of midterm, long-term? Fantastic. Yeah, I guess for anyone listening, if you have someone that you think would be interested in getting involved and contributing in some way, whether that's sourcing from us, either agricultural products or carbon credits, whether that's collaborating on technology, whether that is are, are there families that have financing tons of land investing. that you could partner with? Yeah, that would be helpful. Exactly. Cool. Absolutely. What else, Phil? I think that um one thing I want to touch on is that there's I think the I think that regenerative agriculture is maybe the most compelling investment thesis ever um, right now. I think there's a lot of money to be made and there are so much good that can come out of it and it's so necessary and it will become increasingly um, like a mandate basically. Like there will be no choice. The governments will have to act, act to incentivize this type of behavior. And so I, and even better than that, if, if the economy can yeah. just do its thing. Exactly. And, 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 and incentivize and, and yeah. compensate this type of behavior. Yeah. So, so there's that, but then there's also, I think a massive need, and uh, this is sort of like a, like a, like an early cry for help, you know, type of thing, uh, around, uh, climate change preparedness. Um, so I'm focused and me and the Courageous Land team are focused on climate change mitigation. Uh, we're also focused on climate change preparedness in the sense that agroforestry is more resilient in these extreme weather events. Like as you have trees on your property, um, it's almost like being indoors. A lot of these crops that are sort of like protected by these trees from like crazy winds or crazy storms, even things like drought, you know, there's better moisture retention when there's trees around so you can have the plants survive longer, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there needs to be... Can, can cities benefit from this as well? Absolutely, absolutely. There is an increasing amount of like urban gardens that include trees that are fruit trees and things like that. Like here in Sao Paulo, actually, the other day, um, not the other day, literally every day as I walk my son to school, We've got um, Wolfie. Yeah, we've got pitanga trees, which is a Brazilian native fruit here. I don't know which one is pitanga. It looks like an acetola, but it's of distinct taste. Okay. Uh, anyway, and it's just like these fruit trees that are along the way on the sidewalk that we like stop at and eat from. And I think that there should be more that of that is in the, the city. Beauty, beauty of Brazil, you go to like a like a local padaria to get like breakfast, and the juice menu has like two hundred different fruit juices available. Totally. Exactly. And you walk down the street it's and there's, all like, fresh. there's avocados. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is the beauty. It is the beauty. But anyway, so 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 the to the, all the p- aspiring entrepreneurs out there, I think that you should look into climate change prepared uh, preparedness. So when crazy floods hit or crazy droughts hit and there's no water, like there's gonna be an opportunity there to help people and make a huge impact and also make money doing that. Uh, also I think around um, 
sort of blue carbon and ocean type of stuff. I mean, there's massive cleanup that needs to happen there. There's carbon opportunities in the ocean. You can grow things like algae that are that are really important for for diet as well. And and so I think like these are some of these themes that people can look into. And there's you know billion dollar companies ready to be made for sure. I know you're very much long Tesla. Um, how much how much have you been inspired by Elon? Huge, I'd say it's it's. Um, you know, I've been a Tesla investor since right after the IPO. I think I started investing in 2011 or 2012. It's going well for you. Which, yeah, which has helped <laughs> fund fund courageous land <laughs> to to a good extent. And um, I think that the main lesson learned is the sort of long term thinking, having a master plan, and really taking a lot of time to think through that. And I think that can give you an edge uh, in a business because well, a lot like of people Elon, don't have that long-term vision. Elon's been doing Tesla and SpaceX for like 20 years now. Exactly. These feel like pretty new businesses, but these are these things were long in the making. Exactly. And then this is the exact way I think about Create Design. Like we have a master plan in place. Um, that's a 10-year plan. When we when we hit that, we'll do the next one. And it's just long-term compounding growth that will have the effect of achieving the mission that we want to achieve, which is help mitigate climate change and actually make a dent on that. Amen. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Derek. Uh, where can where can the listeners find Courageous Land? Okay, so yeah, Courageous Land, put it into to Google. You'll find it, courageousland.com, uh, on Instagram as well, or LinkedIn. You can also follow me, Phil Cowders, and, uh, and the team, you'll see us all. Uh, on on LinkedIn on their website and thank you very much. Amazing, thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Take care.